Please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first 14 verses of this book this morning. This evening, we will continue on. We will look at the next passage. But for now, we will look at the first 14 verses of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. May He bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. For real this time. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, as we come to Your word, we pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that you would comfort us and assure us by your gospel, and that you would apply it to our lives, that we may live lives that bring honor and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a child, I was a huge fan of sports. It didn't really matter the sport. I was sort of following all of them. I kind of got into all of them. I got into baseball when the Colorado Rockies expansion team came to Denver because in Wyoming, most people generally root for the teams from Colorado because we didn't have any of our own. And I would watch all the games that I could that were on TV. I remember many of the players that they had um, back in that time when they were first starting. They weren't a very good team, but they hit a lot of home runs and they were exciting for a small child like me. But living in Lusk, Wyoming, professional sports, they were kind of a detached reality. It was something you saw on TV. It was too far away to really be a part of it until one day my mother told me that a community bus trip was going to Denver to see a Rockies game and that uh, she had bought us tickets and we were going to go. 
It was the first time ever that I had been able to go to a major sports event, and I was really excited because I really was into baseball, into sports generally. Now, this trip was a couple months off, uh, but the tickets were bought and we knew we were going. In fact, I to this day remember the date. It was on April 18th, because life became a countdown to April 18th. Because up to that point, the only thing I had really known through the representation of TV, it was now going to be known in real life by sight. And so the next couple of months leading up to that trip, uh, one might have observed a marked change in my behavior. I was a much better behaved son all of a sudden. I was excited. I probably did my chores better. I was nicer to my sister. For one thing, I didn't want to get in trouble, do anything that might jeopardize the trip, but also, I was sincerely excited. I, I, wa- I wanted to um, show that I was excited for this thing that was coming. Now, maybe you've had something like this in your life. You get some big life-changing news. Maybe a baseball game isn't so life-changing, but there's other things that are. And you know and believe it to be true. And because of that, you develop a great anticipation <laughs> of some great event that is to come. And so in anticipation of that event, your joy overflows. It cannot be contained and it affects everything about you, how you work, how you live, how you interact with the world. Maybe a better example that is more life-changing is when you fall in love with the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. You meet that perfect person and you love them And wouldn't you know it, they love you back. You get engaged, and you're looking forward to the wedding, this big, great event. All your friends and family are going to get together. It's going to be the highest expression of interpersonal love. And so you work hard to make it perfect and build for the life you have after that. And there can be anxiety, but more than anything, there's joy because you know that this great thing is coming. And your life leading up to that, it's going to look different. In these seasons of big news and anticipation, we see something of an analogy for the Christian life. We have received this great life-changing news in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ lived, suffered, died, was raised, and has conquered sin and death. Now, we are not able to believe that news of our own doing. It is a gift given by the Holy Spirit. And that gift is faith. But because of the gospel and by faith, we now live with anticipation of the life to come. Our eternal life with Christ. This is hope. This news and anticipation it creates changes the way we live. Because of this hope, our lives are expectant. They are joyful. But also, because of our salvation, our faith, and because of the hope of glory, we want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so then we begin with sincere intent to love God and love neighbor. And so we have here a familiar biblical triad, three things that go together, faith, hope, and love. These are the building blocks of the Christian faith, and around these, everything else comes to be. Around these ideas of faith, hope, and love, Paul builds his introduction to the Colossians, to his letter to the Colossians. 
In fact, it is something of a pattern that this whole book follows and that others of Paul's books follow. There is doctrine, what is to be believed, so matters concerning faith and hope, and then followed by application, what we should do in light of this doctrine. There is love. And in fact, our Reformed doctrine picks up on this. It's why when you look at the Westminster Catechisms or the Heidelberg Catechism, they are set up in such a way that the first part is what we are to believe concerning God, and then what follows is how do we live in light of this. And so in this particular instance, Paul is writing to the Colossians. He is writing to a church that is facing heresy and false teaching, and we'll get to the details of that false teaching a little later. But before he gets to the details, he wants to rejoice with the Colossians in their faith, hope, and love, and he does so in this opening passage. And so we are going to look at this passage today in three points. First, in verses 1 through 7, rejoicing in salvation. Second, in verses 8 through 11, the results of salvation. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, the reality of salvation. We see in this text that because of the work of Christ, we, like these Colossian believers, have a certain faith, an unfailing hope, and we then desire to love. So first we will look at Paul rejoicing in salvation in these first seven verses. Now it is somewhat unusual that Paul would write to the Colossians because we don't have a record of Paul ever going to Colossae or planting the church there. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 2.1 that he didn't go there. He had not gone to Colossae or nearby Laodicea. And yet, through the minister of their church, this Epaphras, Paul knows something about this church and is led to write to them. Now, as we have seen in reading this introductory passage, it seems like a lot is going well. But there are also struggles and difficulties. There is a certain false teaching known as the Colossian heresy, a great original name. But from what we can piece together in this letter, the Colossian heresy, it appears to be syncretistic, which means that it is a mixing of Christianity with other things. Particularly, some were trying to mix Christianity with the regional pagan folk religions and then also some elements of Judaism. Now, the net result of this is legalism. People are trying to impose human laws and customs and returning to the types and shadows of the Old Covenant in Christ's church. And so Paul, in this letter, he wants the Colossians to cling to Christ and not give in to this false teaching. But the rebuke of the heresy comes later. In the opening here, Paul is encouraging and he is thankful for this Colossian church and the faith and life that they have. And so after introducing himself, as well as Timothy, who was probably the scribe that was writing this down for him, Paul addresses the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. Though he has never met them, he is confident that that is what they are. They are known to him by their reputation of faith, hope, and love. Now he calls them saints. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word saint? 
For Roman Catholics, they speak of saints as something of a higher class of Christians. It is a title that is given to a certain few people who have somehow been deemed worthy of it. So you hear things like St. Peter and St. Thomas and so on and so forth. They've met this criteria, and so the church bestows on them the title of a saint. But that is not how being a saint works in Scripture. The meaning of the word saint, it is one who is made holy. So a saint is not a Christian above other Christians, as Rome teaches, but rather a saint, being a saint, is the portion of all believers. If you belong to Christ, you are made holy and you are a saint. Now Paul also calls the Colossians faithful brethren or brothers. Now brothers are family members. In Christ, we are saints, but we are also given a new family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a relationship to one another that is unchangeable and inseparable. Now, this family status also makes us heirs to the Father's riches. Paul is addressing his holy family, even a branch of it he has never met in person. And so he speaks to his family with familial affection, starting in verse 3. There he describes his thankfulness for the Colossians when he prays for them. Now what Paul is describing may not seem that unusual or difficult until you recognize that Paul wrote this letter from prison. And this was Roman prison. This was not some light country club-like prison that we sometimes see in our world today. His life would be very painful. It was very sorrowful. It was full of constant danger. And this imprisonment for the faith will ultimately lead to Paul's death. But despite all of this, he is thankful for the church. Even this church he hasn't met. And he always prays for them, even as he hasn't met them. Now what does he thank God for when he prays? First, he is thankful for their faith. In verse 4, it says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... He is thankful for the sure fact that they are in Christ, that they believe the gospel, and that they have salvation, that they belong to the Lord. While he is writing to Colossae, because there are difficulties, struggles, and false teachings around, he's not going to touch that until he first makes it very clear that they have true and living faith, and he is thankful for that. Second, he thanks God for their love for the saints. This faith they have received is being evidenced in the love they show for one another. Now it is true that as Christians we are to love everyone as our neighbor, but as Christians we are to particularly love our brothers and sisters in the church. We love one another in ways that only we can love one another because that is a love that is brought by an eternal and indissoluble bond we share as members of the body of Christ. Paul makes this more clear in Galatians 6.10, where he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the household of faith. We are to love God's people, the church, preeminently. In our age of the social gospel and of all the things that it has wrought, people love to call on the church to love people, 
while despising the church and treating her badly because of perceived problems. The scriptures have no place for such contempt among the brethren. Whatever love we have for the world, we have a particular and greater love for one another in the household of faith. But third, after this faith and love, we see Paul's thankfulness for the Colossians' hope. In the beginning of verse 5, where he says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So the Colossians' faith is taking them somewhere. Their love proceeds from this hope. After this life, they will behold God. They will be with him in eternal rest. And so we, like them, can have the sure confidence that we will behold Christ and live with him forever. Now, Paul is thankful for this gospel work among the Colossians, but he also wants them to know about the bigger picture. In verse 6, he tells them that the gospel was doing similar things all around the world. It is bearing fruit. Paul himself bore witness to this. He had traveled all over the Mediterranean world. He had planted churches. He had met other churches. And the gospel was going even beyond those places to points of the world where Paul had never even gone. One such example was this church in Colossae. Paul hadn't been there. This wasn't a work that God had done through him. But what we see in verse 7 is this Epaphras. He was a co-laborer of Paul's. He was probably from the area of Colossae, and he went on to plant and pastor a church there. Now, Paul doesn't just mention Epaphras here to give him a pat on the back. Remember that the Colossians are dealing with heresy. They're dealing with false teaching. So Paul is validating Epaphras' ministry. He's telling the Colossians, this guy is the real deal. He's a true minister, and he has preached to them a true gospel. The same gospel that Paul preaches, and the same that is believed throughout the world. Because when false teachers arise, even now... They like to attack those who are faithfully ministering the gospel and the churches where that gospel is preached because they want to turn people away from them. So Paul wants the Colossians to trust in the message and the minister that God has given them lest they be swept away into lies and deception. We can probably feel this situation somewhat in our day. We see that God's word and God's people are often under attack from all sides. This problem is compounded by too many people who, while wanting to be Christians, they also want the approval and acceptance of the world. Too many ministers want to build their brands, build their followings, and so they make peace with the powers of the world with wolves who want to attack the sheep, and they don't faithfully guard the sacred trust of the gospel. Just as a faithful minister like Epaphras and a faithful church like Colossae were under attack then, the same thing happens now. So in this opening, Paul has rejoiced with the Colossians for many things, for their faith, their hope, and their love, This gospel that has come to them as it has come to him and come to the rest of the world, and for a faithful minister that continues to bring it to them. But having rejoiced with the Colossians in their salvation, he now turns to our second point today in verses 8 through 11, the results of salvation. Look at verse 8. 
We find here that not only has Paul commended Epaphras to the Colossians, but Epaphras has commended the Colossians to Paul for their love in the Spirit. Now, Paul had previously mentioned that he always prays for the Colossians, but beginning in verse 9, he describes how he has done this. He does so unceasingly. Once he found out about this church, he started praying for them and he hadn't stopped. And he prays for this church to have certain things. First, Paul prays for their knowledge in the rest of verse 9. Now, what kind of knowledge would this be? Is it the knowledge we typically think of, the kind you get in school, the kind you get for being book smart and well-studied and full of information? No, this is a particular knowledge, a knowledge of God's will, which leads us to the next question. So what is God's will? In the circles I grew up in, this was an ever-present question. Some would do what was referred to as fleecing, drawing on the story of Gideon in the book of Judges, where Gideon put out a fleece to see what God would do to determine God's will. So basically fleecing this idea that you do something to test God to determine his will. And if A, B, or C happens, then I know that it means God wants me to do X, Y, or Z. This isn't a good approach when we look at what Scripture says about God's will. Or others, perhaps in more Pentecostal circles, they try to get some sort of prophetic message, some special word that they claim is from the Lord, or declaring with some claimed secret power what God's will is and what is going to happen. Is that the way to know God's will? I'm reminded of just one example, the Famous evangelist Oral Roberts, who back in 1987 said that if he did not raise $8 million by March of that year, God would call him home. By March, he didn't have the money and he didn't die. He actually lived for many more years. So that's not a good way to come up with or try to apply God's will either. So if we want to know God's will, it would be best to see what God's word says about the topic. And the clearest example we get is in Romans 12, 2, which says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the renewal of our minds proves God's will to us. Well, how are our minds renewed? They are renewed by the Word and by the Holy Spirit that illuminates and applies this Word to us. And in the end of verse 9 of Colossians 1, Paul makes this connection explicit. The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This isn't a knowledge that comes from reading lots of books or going to school, as good as those things may be. This is the knowledge of a renewed mind that is worked by the Spirit in Christ's people to understand God's Word. This is a knowledge not focused on our lives, but one that is focused on knowing and doing what is pleasing to God as He has set forth in His Word. Now this leads us to the second thing that Paul prays for the Colossians to receive in verse 10. He prays for their walk. He prays that this knowledge would produce worthy lives. Lives of obedience, lives of love. Now God's standard of love is according to his law. It is his commands to love God and to love neighbor, which are summarized further in the Ten Commandments. 
But Paul also prays that they would increase in the knowledge of God, that they would further understand God's word by its proclamation and by the work of God's spirit. Now, some important qualifications here. We have to have the cause-effect relationship right. Paul is talking to them about their walk after he has expressed the utmost confidence in the work of the gospel of salvation among them. So he's not being legalistic like the Colossian heretics, telling them that their works have something to do with earning or keeping their salvation. We can't save ourselves by good works. But once we are saved by the gospel of Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, we will most certainly and with sincerity strive to live a life pleasing to him. God renews our minds and our wills and works this sanctification in us and through us. Now third, after their knowledge and their walk, Paul prays for their strength in verse 11. Now this is a passive receiving of strength. They are strengthened with all power. Who has all power? God has all power. And so Paul is praying that they be empowered according to God's power, his glorious might. And this strengthening has a purpose. It is for their endurance and patience with joy. We can all attest to various ways that this life in this world is difficult. We might at times find it too difficult. One of the most popular but also most false common Christian sayings is, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, God may, and God does often give us more than we on our own can handle. On our own strength, we do not have what we need to get through this life, to get through the trials that we face. And yet, the same God who saves us through the work of his Son and empowers us, he also empowers us according to his own infinite and endless power. He helps us in the trials we face in this life. As John wrote in 1 John 4.4, when instructing a church facing Antichrist, he who is in you, so the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world. So God may well give us more than we can handle, but he will never, in fact, he cannot give us anything that he cannot handle. Because he has all power. He is sovereign over even the most minute details of our lives. He is even sovereign over our deaths, and he promises to take his people home to him. So we can have this patience and long-suffering and joy even when life is hard. The Colossians facing struggles, facing false teaching, they can rest confident not in their own strength, but in God's strength working and fighting for them and preserving them. So we have seen first Paul's rejoicing in salvation. We have seen the results of that salvation. And now third and finally we see in verses 12 through 14 the reality of this salvation. So Paul is thankful not only for the Colossians' faith, hope, and love and the fruits it produces in them, but he is thankful for the person and work of Christ that got them there. And so in verse 12, we get this final thing that Paul prayed for the Colossians to have, which is thankfulness for their inheritance. 
Now, I mentioned before that as brothers, as adopted brothers, as we looked at in the catechism earlier, Christians get a new family. As adopted sons of God, they get an inheritance. Paul makes this more clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now the translations uh, the translation here says sons in Romans 8.14. Some change this to say sons and daughters. Now the reason they do this is because they want to say that it applies to both men and women, which is true, but it's actually wrong to change the translation here. It's not because men and women don't receive the blessing. They do. What is that issue is in this situation that Paul was writing, daughters typically did not receive an inheritance. It is sons, especially firstborn sons, that receive an inheritance. So what Paul tells us is all Christians, men and women alike, receive the full adoption as a primary. They get the best of the best inheritance that's possible. It's greater than any earthly inheritance. It's greater than the promised land, which was an inheritance and possession of the Israelites of the Old Testament. It's greater than any earthly goods that moth and rust can destroy. This is a secure, eternal inheritance kept for us by God. But how did we get these blessings? How do we go from sinners rebellious against God to saints in the light, who get adoption by God and a prime share of inheritance. One verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us. First in verse 13, we see our deliverance. Or other translations may use the word rescue. We belonged to a power of darkness. Others may say a domain or dominion of darkness. We were sons of wrath and destruction. We belonged to Satan. We were condemned to eternal death. But from that, God the Father has chosen us, called us, delivered us, adopted us from the domain of darkness. Now this deliverance is presented, it's past tense. It's done. It has occurred. We're not hoping that it happens or working to make it happen. If we are in Christ, it has already happened. But if we are delivered from this darkness, where do we go? Well, second, we see a transfer. The word in the New King James here is conveyed. It is a legal transfer of ownership. It's like when you buy or sell a house or a car you have to do all this paperwork to actually convey the ownership of the property. Even if, you have, if you're living in the house or if you're driving the car, it doesn't mean you own it until this legal transfer takes place. So God has transferred ownership of us from Satan and from his kingdom of darkness to God's kingdom of marvelous light. 
Being in the kingdom of the Son, we see here two benefits that the Son gives us. He gives us redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, this word here, redemption, it's another legal term. One common use of it in Paul's day was for the manumission, the freeing of slaves, which helps us to understand our state of darkness apart from Christ. We were slaves to sin and the devil. We were prisoners. We had no hope of getting out on our own. But in Christ, we have redemption. The price for our deliverance paid in full, completely, past tense, done. With this redemption, we not only get our freedom, but we also get a new status, a new legal status. Our sins are forgiven, like a debt that we owed, but had no way of making up. It was like if we owed ourselves individually the entire U.S. national debt, which is currently over $30 trillion, and the bill came due. There's nothing we could do about that. And yet God takes this unpayable debt and forgives it. And it's forgiven because Christ, in paying our redemption price, paid our debt of sin. He obeyed the law that we could not in his perfect and sinless life on earth, and then he suffered and died bearing the full penalty and wrath of God due for our sins. Again, past tense, completed work for those whom God has so delivered into Christ. So this is the reality of the Colossians' salvation. And for those in Christ today, this is the reality of our salvation. This finished, perfect work of Christ by which we are brought from darkness and bondage into light. So we have seen today Paul rejoicing in the Colossians' salvation, the results of their salvation, and then finally the reality of their salvation, which is the finished work of Christ. We have seen here the Colossians' faith, hope, and love, where it comes from and what it does in them. Now this text... As many do, it puts two calls before us. Perhaps you are here today, and your place is not in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, but you remain in the domain of darkness. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life you could not. He suffered and died to pay the penalty of the sins of his people. For all who would repent of their sins... And believe in Jesus Christ, life and salvation are freely offered. Faith, hope, and love are made available to rebel sinners. But second, for those who are in Christ here today, it helps to understand from where comes faith, hope, and love. Our faith is a gift from God, not effort of our own. Our hope is the sure confidence that God will give us all that he has promised us. Eternal life, eternal inheritance, adoption, all the blessings that come with his salvation. Our love is how this works out in our lives. Because of this great salvation, we love God and love others and serve them with willing hearts, working while resting in the confidence of the finished work of Christ. And so as Christians, we should examine ourselves this day. Are we living consistently with this great salvation we have? Are we confident in this salvation? And do we love others 
and love God within the church and without? Do we live expectant lives of hope or lives of anxiety and despair? So let us be guarded, or let us be guided by faith, hope, and love that comes from God in our hearts and in our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for this great faith that has been given to us as a gift from you by grace alone. I pray that if any here do not have this faith, that you would work it in their hearts by your spirit. We thank you for the eternal hope that we have, that for those who belong to you, we will live with you forever. And I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts and that we would love you and love our neighbor as we ought. We pray this in Jesus' name.